podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Martin Koldorf. Dr. Koldorf is an epidemiologist and biostatistician who has been studying infectious diseases for over two decades. He was a professor at Harvard Medical School for many years, a member of the FDA's Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Committee, and a former consultant for the Centers for Disease Control. In 2020, Dr. Koldorf co-authored the Great Barrington Declaration, a document criticizing the use of society-wide lockdowns for COVID-19 and advocating for a strategy of focused protection for high-risk individuals. Martin and I discussed a variety of topics related to the COVID pandemic, including the nature of how the SARS-CoV-2 virus spreads compared to other pathogens, how our public health strategy was implemented, and his thoughts on how we could have handled the pandemic better, the differences between vaccine-induced immunity and natural immunity, vaccine efficacy, how and why various countries differed in their approach to COVID, and our health and the health of our scientific and public health institutions in the United States. This was a very interesting podcast. Martin and I talked for over an hour and a half. If you're interested in SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of the public health strategy and the epidemiology around how the virus spreads and what the different ways of dealing with that can be and how the pandemic might evolve over time, this will definitely be a podcast of interest to you. As always, if you enjoy this content, please like, share, and subscribe. You can sign up for the free weekly Mind and Matter newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. And you can find that link in the episode description, as well as links to a variety of other resources, including products and services that you can purchase in order to help support the podcast. As a reminder, there's also a video version of this podcast on YouTube. So if you look up Mind and Matter podcast or Nick Jacomis on YouTube, you can find it there and subscribe to the video version as well. Well, this episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Martin Koldorf. Thank you. So, you're a statistician, and you've worked on infectious disease outbreaks and, and studying them for many years now. Can you give everyone just a basic sketch of your scientific training and professional background? Yeah, so for about two decades, I worked on... Uh, 
the early detection and monitoring of infectious disease outbreaks. Uh, I started that work while I was working at the National Institute of Health. And the idea is that if you're in public health, if there is a sudden outbreak of some disease, uh, it could be salmonella or it could be something else, then you want to know about it as soon as possible so that you can uh, take actions as early as possible. So I've developed uh, statistical epidemiological methods for the, the early detection of outbreaks and that are used by um, uh, almost every state health department in the U.S. by many people at CDC and around the world. What does that actually involve? So when they're using the software to detect the early phases of an outbreak, what does that typically look like? So you will have, uh, for example, uh, data reports of uh, some disease. Uh, it could be a reportable disease, uh, like Salmonella, for example, or Legionnaire's disease, uh, and so on. And the health department will get these reports, and then they will see where did it occur. And if there suddenly is um, many cases of Salmonella in the same place, that might be related to each other. Maybe some store is selling some food that's contaminated or something. So then they will do an investigation. Uh, but the first step is then to find out that something might be wrong. And that's what the methods that I've developed does. And then the second step is for the public health officials to, to investigate what is going on there. And uh, that's something that they have to do then through other, other means of uh, interviewing people and so on. So, for example, I think it was in 2015, there was a big outbreak of... Uh, Legionnaire's disease in Bronx, uh, in New York, and that was detected through these measure, measures. But then they, of course, had to figure out what caused it because mm. the method doesn't do that. And it it turned out that it was caused by by one of the cooling towers that was spreading Legionnaire's disease in the neighborhood. But that's something that has to be investigated after you sort of have the suspicion that something might be wrong. Interesting. So we're going to spend most of our time talking about COVID-related stuff because that's that's what we're all in in the midst of right now. But I'm hoping maybe we can build some background for people. So you know, when you think about pandemics and epidemics generally, such as you know any that have have occurred historically, what are some of the tried and true public health measures that most experts would agree are effective at minimizing the negative impacts of the spread of infectious disease? You know, whether or not it was it was COVID or anything historically, what are the basic tools in the toolkit that that most people like yourself would say are are useful? So there are, it depends on the uh, disease. So for example, uh, for something like COVID, which is very contagious, uh, similar to the influenza, uh, the key thing there is to protect those who are at most at risk. Uh, for COVID, we know that's by age. So uh, anybody can get, any, anybody can get, were infected. Uh, everybody do get infected. Uh, so in that sense, everybody's at the same risk. But for young people, it's mostly a mo very mild disease. For old people, it's often deadly. So while anybody can get infected, there's more than a thousandfold difference in the risk of mortality of dying between the oldest and the youngest. youngest. So that means that the key thing for a disease that's very contagious like COVID is to protect the older people um, and to do it without shutting down society 
or harming society in other ways because um, if you do a lockdown that we did for COVID, that has uh, collateral damage in other public health like cancer, cardiovascular disease, and mental health. Uh, so uh, you have to protect the old people while not harming uh, the population in general uh, through this collateral damage. Now, that's for a very contagious disease. If you have another disease like Ebola, for example, which is a more, uh, which is a more deadly disease, but we did have some Ebola in the U.S. some years ago. Mm. And there the key, th- it's not as contagious. So there the key thing is to uh, contain it and suppress it so that it doesn't spread, infect others. And you do that by quarantining people who uh, are sick um, and by having... Uh, all the protective gears for the hospital people who take care for them, and then to do what is contact tracing and testing where you say, who were they in contact with? You ask that, then you test them to see if they have Ebola. If they have Ebola, they have to be isolated as well. Um, so that's something that you can do for something that is less contagious uh, that you want to suppress, but that's a technique that's impossible for disease like influenza or for disease like COVID, it doesn't work because it's so contagious that so many people are going to, uh, that eventually most people are going to get it. I uh, see. So, so a key variable here is the contagiousness of the disease, how easily it spreads, because that determines whether or not it's even going to be possible to suppress it. Correct. And it's mostly because how contagious it is. It also depends on uh, how easy it is to detect before it continues to spread. Mm. Uh, so uh, if it's a very serious disease like Ebola, you know that if somebody has Ebola, you know it because they get very sick. So mm-hmm. you can, you can uh, identify them. For a thing like uh, influenza or COVID, some people get very sick, but others get only very mild symptoms or no symptoms. So then it's uh, harder also to, uh, to see how it spreads. And, and we knew that from the very early on because um, outside of China, the two areas that was hit hard very early, the first two were hit very hard were Northern Italy and Iran. And we had no clue who brought it in there. We, we can sort of trace the people who even brought it in there. So that means it's, uh, and it was already in many other places around the world at that time, uh, so that means it's impossible to uh, to suppress and uh, to suppress it through contact tracing and then testing. I see. So so if if a particular contagion can present with mild symptoms, where you don't even realize someone is sick, it's it's futile to try the contact tracing and suppression route because you're simply not going to be able to see everyone who's sick, and they're going to spread it anyway. Yep. Pretty much. So I, I do. So I do want to kind of go back to those early days of the COVID pandemic. Um, so I can remember back to very early in 2020 when some of this was happening. I live here in Seattle, which also was sort of relatively early in terms of when we started seeing it here compared to other spots in the U.S. Yeah, so for remember, the U.S. this was one of the early hotspots. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I remember in the very early days, it was you know very unclear, at least to me and, and the people in my life, how serious this was, how contagious it was. And so we were all literally um, in our homes, like, you know, wondering what was going to happen. But you know, as as experts like yourself and others started to learn about SARS-CoV-2 coming out of China in late 2019, 
but before it kind of became the full-blown pandemic and, and and became aware the public became aware of what was going on what was what was what were your initial reactions to the prospect of a global pandemic did you think it was likely by the time we got to early 2020 how are you looking at it at that time uh so that's good so uh, i was so first of all when uh, when it hit italy and iran it was clear it was absolutely obvious that this was going to be a worldwide pandemic and that they would eventually uh, hit uh, every uh, all parts of the world. So that was clear to me uh, very early on. Uh, second, I was worried for maybe 10, 20 minutes. I was very worried. And uh, because I knew it was going to spread to the world, so it would eventually hit uh, uh, everybody I know and care about and uh, every country. But uh, I then looked at the data from Wuhan mm. and the mortality data. And I could see there that the people who had died, this was very early on in Wuhan, were mostly older people. There was a huge, uh, 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 and I think there were very, very few young, it was one person who was somewhat young, but it was basically older people. And at that time, Nobody was taking taking precautions because nobody really knew what was going on at that time. So presumably, all age group were approximately equally exposed. Mm. I would expect that middle aged people were probably exposed more because they're more active in the in the uh, in society, and maybe older people slightly less. Um, and the very young children maybe also less because maybe they are more home. But a fairly equal distribution of being exposed to the virus. At the same time, it was only the older people who were dying. So at that time, it was already very clear that there was a huge uh, risk gradient in age. And I did some uh, uh, calculations myself then and found that it was more than a thousandfold difference in the mortality risk based on those Wuhan numbers uh, only. And that's turned out to be correct uh, calculations. Uh, those uh, estimates are have been sort of validated from other places of the world. So that meant that uh, I have three children. As uh, every parent, I am more concerned about my children than about myself. So uh, it was clear that this was not dangerous to them. Uh, they were not going to die from this disease. And then I wasn't really that scared of, uh, anymore. Uh, I'm in my 50s, so uh, I uh, I was at uh, sort of medium risk, but I figured I was not at any more risk of dying from COVID than I was from being diagnosed uh, and dying from cancer in the next uh, uh, so many years. Um, so uh, to me, it, it was not so uh, scary for that. So that, that I wasn't scared anymore. Now we didn't at that. So at that time, I was able to calculate the relative risk by age. At that time, we didn't know what was the absolute risk. We didn't know if it was very, very low or if it was somewhat high. On the other hand, the strategy for dealing with the the pandemic depends more on the relative risk than on the absolute risk, because we weren't going to be able to uh, suppress it. So. What was the key then 
was to use the relative risk knowledge we had to protect the oldest people uh, who uh, who needed protection. And, and that strategy would be valid no matter what the absolute risk is. Mm. And to now, make it clear for people, can, can you just explain the difference between relative and absolute risk? So, for example, if... Uh, uh, if a young person has a risk of one in a million and an older person has a risk of dying one in a thousand, the relative risk is a million divided by a thousand. So the relative risk is a thousand. So that's a relative risk. Uh, if, uh, if the risk of dying for an older person is, uh, for a younger person, one is 10,000. And for older person is one in 10, that's a much, much higher risk. It's a hundredfold higher risk. Although that the relative risk is the same because 10,000 divided by 10 is also 1,000. Mm. So the relative risk between the ages is the same, but the absolute risk is much bigger in the second scenario. I see. So like an old person can be 100 or 1,000 times as likely to die from something, but you could have another. You could have another virus, another contagion, where the same thing is true, and yet that one is like a hundred or a thousand times as deadly, just in general. And right. That's the difference. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things. So so we'll probably come back to this in a number of ways. That there's this relative risk thing that has to do with uh, the disease being much more severe the older you get. And you know, again, if I think back to early 2020, earlier mid 2020 in Seattle, the big thing that was happening here was all of these outbreaks in the nursing homes. And from my perspective early on, it sort of seemed like, oh, wow, somehow it's specifically in the nursing home. But what I now know in retrospect is it was actually probably spreading throughout society. It's just that it was more severe in the elderly. But one of the other things I remember that I would love to get, yeah, I would love to get your comment on is people were getting, old people in nursing homes were getting sick. They were being taken to the hospital and then they were being taken back to the nursing home. And that, you know, I know in retrospect was not a good idea, but at the time, was that a wise decision or is that something that we, we only learned later on was unwise? And what does that start to tell you about how we were dealing with this early on? It was not a wise decision at the time. It should have been obvious to anybody that there was a very bad decision. Uh, we knew that the older people uh, were at highest risk. And of course, in nursing homes, they're not only old, but they're also more frail. Uh, so we knew that they were at the highest risk. Uh, so to send sick uh, uh, patients to the nursing homes uh, uh, is basically uh, the same as killing people. Not deliberately, but in practice, uh, people die because of that. Many people die because of that. I mean, what was the reasoning? Was the reasoning there that like we wanted to keep them out of the hospital to not contaminate more people in the hospital? What was the thinking that was had there? Uh, I think the state of rationale was to open up beds in the hospitals. Mm. So once they had sort of were on the path of recovery, they wanted to open up beds for other COVID patients that they expected to come in. And uh, fine, it's fine to, to have them leave the hospitals, but then you have to put them in a special facility uh, where uh, they don't infect other people. You don't send them to uh, old nursing homes. Um, it's uh, of all the things that went wrong during this pandemic, uh, that's uh, one of the big ones for sure. 
I see. And, and, you know, you just said of all the things that went wrong. So, you know, every, everyone at this point has an opinion on, on different things, whether or not they're an expert or not. Um, but I want to obviously get your expert opinion on some of this stuff. You are famous and infamous, I suppose, for writing uh, this document called the, the Great Barrington Declaration. So that was written in 2020. You co-authored it with some other uh, scientists. Can you explain for people who don't know what that is, what, what it is, and, and why you wrote it? So it was written together with two other infectious disease technologists. Uh, one is Dr. Sunita Gupta at Oxford University, who I view as the preeminent infectious disease technologist in the world. And uh, that is uh, Dr. Jay Bharacharya at Stanford University. Uh, so the, in the Great Barrington Declaration, we put forward uh, a call to deal with the pandemic using focus protection, where we are urging to do a much better job protecting older, high-risk people, while at the same time, uh, we were very concerned about all the collateral public health damage. So we were urging uh, uh, children and younger people to live uh, near normal lives uh, to minimize the collateral damage, and for example, to keep the schools open for children. It's important for children to go to school and to have a good education, both for what they learn, but also for their social development and so on. And nothing of this was any novel or new at the time. This is uh, uh, the same thing that was part of the pandemic uh, plans that had been prepared by many countries uh, long before the pandemic, long before COVID. So there was nothing new and novel in it. We were sort of just reiterating basic principles of public health that had been thrown out the window. And the three of us, as well as many other infectious disease technologists around the world, were very frustrated because we were trying to speak up and say that uh, uh, this uh, 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 strategy uh, against COVID was not a smart strategy. And in the beginning, we were silenced. So it was very difficult to make our voices heard, not just the three of us, but others as well. So the thought was that, uh, and there were different excuses. There was uh, for silencing people. One was, well, you're only one person, and this goes against the the, the, the established uh, thinking and narrative, or uh, this person is not an epidemiologist, etc. So we thought that if the three of us get together and we write. Uh, this declaration, we are all infectious disease epidemiologists, so they can't sort of dismiss us from that. And there's three of us rather than zero, or only one person, so three instead of one. And uh, we are from reasonably respectable universities. So uh, our hope was that by writing that, it would be impossible to ignore that, uh, uh, ignore this, and to make it clear to everybody that what was claimed to be, they claimed that there was scientific consensus for these lockdowns and these other restrictive measures and for not properly protecting the older ones, thinking that lockdowns would protect, sort of shutting down society and protect and, and lockdown would protect the older one, which, which turned out wasn't the case. So to show, uh, to sort of make it clear that the established um, narrative and strategy for the pandemic that was sort of uh, 
forward by Anthony Fauci in the US, as well as in other people in other countries, there was actually no scientific consensus for that. Uh, and we succeeded, I think, because it, it was, we did make it clear that we, we, we weren't able to, to change the strategy except in a few places, but uh, uh, we made it clear that there was no scientific consensus for the strategy that uh, the US and other governments employed. Uh, and uh, we had uh, over 10,000 other public health scientists sign on to the declaration, as well as uh, hundreds of thousands of people, mem- members of the public. So, so what was, you know, what's the most generous characterization you could give to the strategy, the people that were in favor of the strategy that was implemented in the United States and who were against the strategy that you were advocating for? So, so if you were you know, you know what, what? What would be Anthony Fauci's perspective on this? What was his justification for for that approach? If you had to characterize it in the fairest way possible, so I think they viewed it similarly to how I described Ebola. Uh, that they their aim was to suppress it, to get rid of it, uh, even though that was impossible, and we now know that it was impossible. Uh, because never ever before in the history has there been such harsh public health measures. And people did a great job obeying those, uh, those uh, uh, restrictions and mandates that came from the government. So you, so you can't blame the population, the citizens for doing it, because they certainly did their part. So, but it was a futile thing from the beginning uh, to, uh, to do this for, for uh, COVID. Um, and uh, so the most charitable thing I can say is that he truly believed that it was possible to suppress this virus, but it wasn't. I see. And so he did everything he could to suppress it. Um, so, so like I remember, I think everyone remembers the, uh, you know, the two weeks to smash the curve meme. And, you know, that was shared widely all over the place. So you're saying you're saying the strategy was really like you were describing for Ebola, that if you go into uh, lockdowns and you get everyone to behaviorally um, change what they're doing, you can actually um, isolate all of those who are sick and um, prevent this thing from spreading and suppress it. Um, and that works for something like Ebola, which is not nearly as contagious and is easier to see when someone is sick. That strategy was implemented for COVID, but what you're saying is because it's so contagious and because of the mild or or invisible symptoms that that some people, many people present with, that there was just no way this was going to work even in principle, even. And that was known to at least, or that was the view of you and and a not insignificant number of experts even back then. Yeah. So I think any, uh, um, uh, I mean, if, if, if you know your infectious disease technology, it's sort of obvious mm-hmm. that it wasn't going to work. Now, the problem is that Anthony Fauci is not an epidemiologist or a public health scientist. He is an immunologist, a lab scientist. So he understands immunology and, and viruses from sort of the, the, the detailed perspective of somebody in the laboratory. Um, but to understand whether you can suppress something, you have to understand how the virus spreads uh, and the probabilistic nature of how uh, viruses sort of uh, move in a society. Mm. So what you can do and what was done is by doing some of these measures, uh, uh, some of the measures I think were, were completely ineffective, but some of them, like for example, uh, 
social distancing, that will uh, temporarily sort of push the problem into the future. Now, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know exactly how serious it was. And there was a concern about uh, overcrowding the hospitals. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a very valid concern. So to, and this concept of flatten the curve, I think is actually a valid concept. Mm. Because, uh, okay, uh, people are going to get sick, but you don't want everybody to get sick at the same time. Mm. Because then you can't give them proper health care. Mm-hmm. So the idea of flatten the curve is basically to is not to, to remove move it, but to to flatten the peak, to spread it out. So instead of everybody getting this uh, uh, sick the same uh, two or three weeks, you spread it out over two or three months. So that's a va- very valid thing to do, uh, uh, and it could have been done in with better. Uh, ways uh, closing schools didn't help with that, but uh, making sure that all people didn't go to restaurants that did sort of help with with that aspect. So uh, I think that was completely valid to do that, uh, but that means that that's something that should be done for for a month or two at most. Uh, but this sort of continued for several years or for two years, uh, and then it's no longer about flattening the curve; it's about suppression. Mm-hmm which was impossible. I see. I see. So you, you you are saying that it's it's possible to uh it's possible to slow the spread of something this contagious so that your hospitals and healthcare infrastructure doesn't get overwhelmed, but it is not possible to completely suppress it. And that's that's the difference between these sort of temporary the sort of temporary flatten the curve measures versus the perpetual lockdown. Correct. So you can postpone it some some you can postpone some of the infections into the future. Yeah, and I suppose we've sort of seen multiple cycles of that at this point, right? Because we've seen multiple waves of different variants come and go, and it's at least to me, it's not obvious that uh, the the particular measures that anyone was adopting was you know preventing that from happening. Yeah, and those waves actually are for a different reason as well, um, and that's because it's uh, we now know that COVID is seasonal. We didn't know that back in March of 2020, but we now know that. So there is more COVID. Uh, so in, in the Northern Hemisphere, like Northern the US, for example, uh, Northern Europe, there are more cases in, it spreads more easily uh, during the winter months. Mm-hmm. So therefore we have a wave in the winter and then in the summer there's less. So what basically happens is that uh, in technology you have something called the reproductive number. If, if a random person gets sick, how many other persons does, does that person infect? If the average number is less than one, then the, the uh, infection will peter out. Mm-hmm. If it's more than one, it will spread and spread. Until then, there are enough people who already have been sick, and then you get they have immunity. So then they can't get it, mm-hmm. and then that will lower it. But this threshold uh, uh, is different in the winter or the summer. So you, uh, and what happens is if it's less than one, that means you have what's called herd immunity. Enough people have immunity that the, the infection can no longer spread uh, successfully and, in, in, and infect more and more people. And that threshold for herd immunity varies uh, over time with, for a seasonal disease. So it's lower in the summer and it's higher in the winter. So that means in the summer, it is, it's less contagious and therefore, 
uh, fewer fewer get it, and it will be sort of just be a little bit. And then in the winter, it gets more contagious again, and then you have another wave. Now, uh, in southern the US, the, the seasonalities will be different because they have a smaller winter wave, but they also have a summer wave. And we don't necessarily know exactly why that is, and we don't know exactly why what's causing the seasonality. It could be temperature, it could be humidity, mm-hmm. it could be the fact whether people are indoors more or outdoors more, uh, and, or it could be a variety of these factors and additional. Well, so we don't really know why it's causing the seasonality, but we know that there is seasonality. And we can see also in the summer, southern hemisphere, they had their peaks in uh, June, July, August, which is their winter season. Mm-hmm. And so with respect to the, the idea of herd immunity, the, and the basic idea is if a, a sufficiently high percentage of the population um, gets an infection and then recovers, you the herd of people, the full population of people builds up immunity and that um, decreases the ability of the virus to continue spreading. So, so in this document, the Great Barrington Declaration, you talked about focus protection, focusing on the most at-risk people, which are older people um, especially. And you talk about the idea of herd immunity. And I know that some people characterize this um, this strategy as being very inhumane. And there were people saying, "Well, you you're just want you just want to passively accept." Uh, that this virus is here and let it spread through the population. And that's inevitably going to lead to more people getting severe disease and dying. And it was being character. I mean, I think the World Health Organization head said that reaching herd immunity was an unethical and unprecedented strategy. So what's your response to those characterizations? So first of all, herd immunity is a scientific fact, just like gravity. And uh, that's how all pandemic ends. Uh, when enough people are immune, uh, then uh, uh, the pandemic will end or the endemic will end, uh, epidemic will end. But, uh, uh, and then uh, new people are born and then they are susceptible because they don't have the immunity and then they will be infected and then when enough of those are infected, it will go down again until there's enough newborns to sort of have another uh, another wave of it. Uh, so before we had the measles vaccines, for example, measles came in waves because you had a wave and then enough was immune. So you had herd immunity, but then enough new people are born. So maybe two years later, you get another wave because now you have all these young children who are not immune anymore. So that's how infectious diseases work. Uh, uh, so to talk about a herd immunity strategy is nonsense because every strategy of COVID will lead to herd, will lead to herd immunity. Mm. Uh, the lockdown strategy will also lead to herd immunity uh, because that's the way infectious diseases work. And we have seen that's what's, uh, well, that's what's occurring now. Um, uh, we are sort of moving to the end of this pandemic, and that's because more and more people have had COVID, and therefore more and more people are immune. And uh, uh, therefore, the pandemic will end. It doesn't mean that people will not get it a second time, potentially. Uh, but once you've had it, if you get it a second time infected, then your risk of dying is much less. So that's what's occurring with our previous four coronaviruses that are widely circulating for, for a long time, for probably more than 100 years. Uh, and they, uh, uh, they don't... Uh, cause any serious 
diseases for most people because most people are exposed when they are young, when this is not a serious thing, and then they have protection for later on. And then maybe when they are 93 years old, they will get it the last time, and then they are so weak and their immune system is so weak, so maybe they will then uh, get pneumonia and therefore they will die from it. So, so that can happen for the very old and frail, but uh, that's sort of the endemic stage where people might get infected, but it's not serious because we already have the immunity. I see. So so the idea of herd immunity, it's not like there's a herd immune immunity strategy or there's a different strategy. Eventually, there will be herd immunity no matter what. It's just a matter of how exactly we get there and how long it takes. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And what herd immunity means is that uh, if a certain percent of the population are immune, uh, it varies by diseases and so on. Uh, and it depends on exactly who is immune. But let's say if it's 80%, that means that those 20%, it, it, then, this, then the virus can no longer circulate efficiently. So that means that those 20% who haven't been sick yet, they're actually protected by the herd, by those who already are immune. So, uh, uh, but, but one thing that has actually happened is that uh, we have had new variants that are more contagious than the earlier ones. So the Omicron variant is more contagious than the Delta variant, and the Delta variant was more contagious than the previous variants. And that means that when we get an, a, a variant that's even more contagious, that means that the threshold for herd immunity goes up. Mm. So we don't know what the numbers was, but maybe it was 60, 70 or something for the earlier ones. And now for Omicron, it's actually close to 100%, 95% or so more. So it basically means that by doing these lockdowns, by sort of holding back the, the, the spread among those younger people who are not at risk, by doing that, we sort of force the, the virus to mutate into more, more variant, more, more contagious variants, because that was the only one way for them to sort of, the virus, virus to succeed. Uh, uh, and there was enough susceptible people to sort of, for the new variants to spread. So that means that uh, uh, with these new variants, the herd immunity threshold is larger, and that means that more people will be sick before we reach herd immunity, which means that the proportion of people that we can protect through the, that are protected by, by the herd and their immunity is actually smaller. I see. So, so it's, it's actually counterproductive to do this because we've got these more contagious variants. I see. So it, more, to, it made it more difficult to protect those older, very vulnerable people. So just to reiterate that, what you're saying is if you've got a virus and it's got a certain level of contagiousness, it could mean that um, to reach herd immunity, maybe 60% of the population has to be exposed to the virus and get infected or get vaccinated against it. And once you get to that 60% of the population with immunity, you sort of, you're protecting everyone, including the other 40% um, who have not been infected yet. Um, but if an, another more contagious virus comes along, maybe that number goes up to 80%. And now you've got to have 80% of the population that's exposed or vaccinated to protect the 20%. So now there's an even smaller number of people um, that are in that, that smaller group. And effectively, what's happened is as these lockdowns have progressed, and as these more contagious variants have come, that number has kept going up. The, the percentage yeah. of the people that need to be uh, exposed or, or yeah. get immune. And so it's, it's actually, I mean, you're saying it's actually counterproductive that that happened. Yeah. 
And I mean, when the vaccines came, we were hoping that the vaccine would help with uh, immunity and help with the herd immunity. But unfortunately, that was not the case. So the vaccines were very good at protecting severe disease and death. So therefore, it's, I mean, it's very important for especially older people to get the vaccine mm-hmm. um, if they haven't had COVID already, because then they're immune. But if they haven't had COVID, older people, uh, it's very, very important for them to be vaccinated uh, around the world, no matter where they live. Uh, but we know that the vaccine doesn't really protect you from getting infected and to uh, it doesn't really reduce transmission. It might do it for a short period of time, but the, the, vaccine, the efficacy of the vaccine against uh, being infected wanes very quickly within a few months. So that means that we, the vaccine is not really helping ending the pandemic and hem, uh, ending the, uh, the spread of the disease. We have to rely on natural immunity. And that's why people who are vaccinated, uh, are st- they're still getting infected. But then once they get infected, they have good immunity for the future. I see. So the vaccines are very great and important for reducing the severity and mortality from COVID. But it, it, unfortunately, uh, it, didn't, it wasn't very helpful in terms of uh, building the immunity in the population. So it's been very clear that that these new vaccines do decrease substantially the mortality risk and the severity of the COVID you get if you get infected, but you're saying that they have not been as good as we hoped at reducing transmission. Is that typical for a vaccine or does it really depend on the vaccine in terms of how effective it is at reducing transmission and infection? It depends on the vaccine. So for example, the measles vaccine is very good at reducing transmission. Hmm. So uh, the, uh, the measles vaccine protects both against uh, severity of the disease, but uh, basically uh, most people who have the measles vaccine, the vast majority will not get sick and will not transmit it to others. I see. And you know, on the subject of vaccine-induced immunity versus natural immunity, this has also been something that's very controversial. Um, in at least in the public sphere, I think you know my perception has been that uh, you know discussing the the potential effectiveness of natural immunity has been uh, controversial to a lot of people because I, I think a lot of people think that if if natural immunity is effective or we tell people that it is effective at preve- preventing future infection, this might incentivize more and more people not to get the vaccine, and there's some concern there. And so I want to start talking about. Um, the the immune response induced by the mRNA vaccines as compared to a natural infection. And I think maybe a good place to start is I know that you've written about um, you've written about this subject. And in 2021, in the fall, there were two studies about natural immunity that came out. One was from an Israeli group and one was from the CDC. So can you talk to us about those two studies and, and what they started to tell us and, and why that's interesting? Uh, yeah, so the study from Israel was one of the first uh, one. So first of all, uh, the fact that you have better immunity from having recovered from the disease, that that is better than the immunity from the vaccine, is shouldn't be controversial uh, because that's what you expect. Uh, the vaccines are meant to sort of uh, simulate the immune response from the disease without you getting sick. But... Uh, typically, it's not as effective as doing that as being sick. Uh, it's sort of, but it's still better to get the vaccine because you don't get sick. You don't yeah. risk dying. 
But once you've had the disease versus once you've had the vaccine, you would expect the person who had the disease to have better immunity. And of course, we've known about natural immunity for about two and a half thousand years, since 430 BC during the Athenian plague, where they knew that once you recovered from the plague, uh, you were not at risk of, uh, of the disease anymore. And they used those to sort of care for, for the sick. So, uh, so what the Israeli study did is, of course, so it's nothing surprising in this. Uh, what the Israeli study was, it did this for, for specifically for COVID, and it looked at, uh, uh, at those who were vaccinated versus those who had recovered from COVID. And they found that uh, those who were vaccinated had 27 times higher risk of being inf- getting a symptomatic uh, disease of COVID versus those who were recovered. Um, so uh, that's very clear evidence that natural immunity is stronger than vaccine immunity. There was also a difference uh, for hospitalizations but in both groups, the number of deaths was zero. So both the vaccinated and those who are recovered were well protected against death. Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, now there has been many other studies since then who have sort of reproduced um, the Israeli study showing that uh, national immunity after COVID recovery is better than uh, vaccine immunity. Now, there was this CDC study that you mentioned, which was very, very strange, because uh, what they did, uh, they looked at people who came into the hospital and whether they have had COVID or whether they had some other respiratory disease, and then to see whether they were vaccinated or not. Uh, But that's a flawed epidemiological design. Uh, that they used. They weren't really comparing the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, whether they got deceased. They were basically comparing those who were hospitalized for COVID versus those who were hospitalized for other respiratory diseases. What was their uh, uh, vaccination status? Status. So they were sort of comparing, not the, they were not comparing the two white groups. And I, I wrote, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to describe uh, 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 verbally, especially since uh, uh, it was a few months since I uh, wrote this, but I wrote uh, a, a sort of a detailed comparison of the strengths versus weak weaknesses of these two studies that I published uh, on the Brownstone Institute. So I guess, I, the, there. I guess the point is, so these two studies come out in the fall of 2021, one from an Israeli group, one from the CDC. They come to different conclusions about the effectiveness of natural immunity, but the CDC study is uh, got a different design, which which stru- struck you at the time as a very strange design. The Israeli study um, was well controlled in a number of ways, and since then, uh, a number of studies have replicated the result of the Israeli study, which is the expected result the entire time, which is that, of course, natural immunity is going to be more effective in certain ways just because you're, you know, you're being exposed to the full pathogen. Yeah, and actually CDC came out with a subsequent study, uh, which was well-designed, and that showed uh, similar results to the Israeli study. I see. And so do you think that this was just, 
a flawed study that came out uh, because people were maybe not as, as careful as they should have been, or maybe the researchers were uh, not as experienced or something? Or do you think that they wanted to publish this at the time because they thought that particular result was worth having out in the public sphere? I think there's probably two reasons. I think in terms of some of the scientists, they probably thought that they were doing a good study, even though they didn't realize that it was a flawed study design. And then they sort of presented that, I think. But that's sort of the individual scientists. So the question is then, why was this sort of blown up uh, or, or propagated so much? And I think that's because probably... Uh, so the, the, the director of the CDC, uh, Rochelle Valensky, in... Uh, Already in 2020, she came out uh, questioning national immunity uh, together with a few other scientists. They published uh, what they call the memorandum in the Lancet, which is a British uh, med- uh, uh, supposedly prestigious British medical journal. So they were at that time they were questioning the existence uh, of uh, of uh, immunity after recovering from COVID, which was very strange because already then we knew that very few were were infected more than once. And it went sort of against the, what we would expect uh, historically from infectious diseases. But for some reason, she went out with that uh, thought that uh, questioning uh, uh, immunity after recovering from COVID. And to, to me, it's very strange to have a director of CDC who doesn't believe in national immunity uh, it's like having a director of, of uh, NASA who is questioning whether the Earth is flat or round, um, because it's such a basic, fundamental aspect of uh, infectious disease technology. Hmm. So I think maybe some uh, 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 some something was sort of maybe she felt that this study was sort of vindicating her position mm-hmm. from from before, <clears throat> and therefore she was pushing it. Yeah, and it's um. I mean, it's also not difficult to imagine how these things can happen sort of organically. It's, you know, you can imagine, you know, if, if, the, if, if your boss, if the director has come out stating like one thing, they don't necessarily need to come to you and tell you to go find that answer. But if you're doing a study and it seems to be that one result is congruent with what your boss has already said, uh, you'll maybe have less incentive to, to dig deeper into it than, than otherwise. Yeah. No, that's probably how the human psychology works sometimes. So I also want to get back to discussing um, the mRNA vaccines themselves. So not only are these new vaccines in the sense of we've recently created them to help with the COVID pandemic, but it's a new kind of technology. They work in a different way from a normal vaccine. It's something that I've discussed on the podcast before, so I don't think we need to go into too, too much detail about like the mechanics of the mRNA vaccines. But, you know, what's your general perspective on the overall effectiveness of these vaccines so far with respect to mortality, with respect to contagiousness? I know that we've touched on this before, but I just want to reiterate it for people. Uh, So let's go back a little bit to the uh, late uh, 2020 when these uh, uh, vaccines were approved, Pfizer and Moderna. And it was quite interesting in that when they were approved, they were approved because they did a randomized uh, trial, which is what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And they were able to show that there were uh, about 95% efficacy against symptomatic disease. 
So that's what they showed in the study. And that's why they were approved during the emergency use authorization. At the time, there were two things we didn't know because the randomized trials didn't uh, even attempt to answer those questions. Uh, we didn't know if it reduced transmission or not. Mm. And uh, the hope was that they would, because the hope is if you can reduce symptomatic disease, you will hopefully also reduce transmission. But that wasn't studied in those uh, trials. Uh, the other thing that wasn't studied was if it reduced mortality. So when these were approved, we knew it reduced symptomatic disease, but we didn't know if that reduced mortality. And the reason we didn't know was that when they recruited patients to these randomized trials, uh, the vast majority were young or middle-aged adults mm. between ages 18 and let's say 50 or 60. So there were very few people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s in these studies. And uh, if you're in the 20s, 30s, or 40s, uh, or 50s, you're likely to survive whether you're vaccinated or not. So there was very few deaths in either group. Um, so if they had wanted to study uh, mortality as the outcome, which is the most important outcome, they should have uh, recruited mostly older people in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but they didn't do that. So the, <clears throat> the Pfizer-Moderna studies, they were actually not designed to determine whether it reduced mortality or maybe... Uh, one should say they were designed not to be able to uh, determine that. So we knew at the time when they were approved through the emergency association, we knew that they uh, reduced uh, symptomatic disease within the next few, few months, because obviously we hadn't been able to follow the people more than a few months because it was... Uh, 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 the 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 COVID had been around had been around for less than a year, so you can't follow them for 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 more than a few months because the trial started, I think, around August or so. Uh, so we knew there was short term efficacy against symptomatic disease, but we knew nothing else in terms of from the trials. No, the, what it turns out was that the hope that they would reduce transmission turned out to be not true. It doesn't reduce transmission, <laughs> maybe just briefly. Uh, the hope that they will reduce mortality did play out. It did a good job reducing mortality. So did you, did you personally get vaccinated with one of the uh, mRNA vaccines? And, you know, given your age, did, how, how did you think about that in terms of risk benefit? Uh, so I think uh, medical, uh, what one decides for one's own uh, medical treatments, I think should be a personal decision. So I'll refrain from answering that. But I will answer in terms of uh, uh, as a public health scientist. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that, if you've had COVID already, you have very good immunity, so then you don't need the vaccine. Uh, if you haven't had COVID, if you are an older person, then for sure it's very important to get the vaccine. Uh, that will reduce the risk of uh, hospitalization, but even more importantly, the risk of death. Um, uh, so 
Uh, if you're above 60, definitely you should get vaccinated, maybe even in your, if you're 50s. Uh, if you're a child, uh, the risk of, you can still get infected, but the risk of mortality or hospitalization is minuscule. So children do not need this vaccine. Uh, we can give an example from the first wave in Europe, um, where Sweden uh, did not close down. Was, Sweden was the only uh, major Western country who didn't close down schools. Uh, uh, who kept schools open throughout the first wave of the pandemic for all children between ages 1 and 15, uh, daycare and schools. And there are 1.8 million children in Sweden of this age group and exactly zero died from COVID during this wave. And uh, there was just a few hospitalizations. And teachers were at no higher risk than, than other professions. So we knew very early on that uh, COVID has minuscule risk for children. Um, and I also work on vaccine safety to evaluate the safety of vaccines. And there's always uncertainties about the risks. And we now know that there are some risks like myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart uh, and blood clots uh, from some of these vaccines. So uh, there's always some risk. On the other hand, if you are if you are 77 years old, the benefit of, in terms of reducing mortality is enormous from mm -hmm. the vaccines. So even if there's a small risk from some adverse reaction from the vaccine, uh, the the benefits outweigh the risk uh, uh, widely. So it's a no-brainer to take the vaccine, in my view. On the other hand, for a child, uh, even a tiny, tiny risk would outweigh the benefit because the benefits are, are uh, uh, almost non-existent. And we actually saw a recent paper coming out from New, uh, the New York State Health Department looking at uh, the benefit of these vaccines for children. And for those who were 5 to 11 years old, uh, they were very uh, small benefit in terms of... Uh, uh, symptomatic disease, I think it was was a twelve percent reduction, which is which is ridiculously low for a vaccine. And they also looked at uh, hospitalizations, but there was not statistically significant reduction. And of course, there was no death in either group because the deaths uh, are very small with it for children if you're vaccinated or not. So I think uh, the data is is sort of confirming that for children, uh, these are not important vaccines. Mm -hmm. Now, where do you put the cutoffs in age? I don't know. So I think people have to sort of make a guess themselves uh, uh, where, they, where that cutoff should be. I see. So what is your, um, how are you thinking about new variants? We've talked about some of the variants a little bit. They have tended to become more contagious over time. Do you think, you know, can you talk a little bit more about the, the extent to which these new variants were evolving sort of spontaneously on their own, so to speak, versus evolving in, as a direct reaction to some of the selective pressures we were placing on them because of how we were responding to the pandemic socially? Uh, so there will always be mutations mm -hmm. uh, in a virus, and most of them will not make any changes because they might only... Uh, influence affect a few people. So it's when there is a mutation that makes the virus more contagious, that's where 
that's when that will sort of take over from the old variants. Uh, so that that's sort of what that's what's bound to happen. Uh, so that's why the Delta variants was more contagious, and that's why it sort of uh, competed out the other ones, the previous variants. And then the Omicron was even more contagious, so that's what's competed out uh, the Delta variant. Uh, so you would expect when you have a new variant, so the mutation might be more or less contagious, but it's the mutations that are more contagious that will actually sort of evolve and then sort of compete out the other ones. So that's what you would expect to, to see. Um, new variants can be either more or less uh, uh, dangerous, mm -hmm. more or less uh, uh, fatal. Uh, so that I think can go in either direction. But uh, more, but mutations, new new virus that spread will be typically more contagious. Now, uh, variants will sort of occur. Uh, variants will occur sort of randomly in different parts of the world. And what happens is that if a lot of people get infected early on then those variants that occur won't really have much time to spread because already a lot of people are immune. And we know that there's immunity across uh, these variants. So if you've had one variant, you're still immune, immune against the other ones. On the other hand, if you drag it on more longer, which you do with lockdowns and social distancing, uh, that means that those variants, that when they occur, they have more sort of time to spread around the world. So that's exactly what happened. Uh, we sort of, uh, when the, the Delta variant came, there were still a lot of people who were susceptible, who weren't immune, and therefore it could spread. When the Omicron came later on, there were still a lot of people who were uh, immune, uh, susceptible, not immune, susceptible, and so it could spread. Um, after Omicron, I think that most people are going to... Uh, Omicron is going to cause most people to be immune, uh, having had it, have natural immunity. So I don't, I don't, I, I don't necessarily foresee that there will be a, a, another, even more contagious variant that this will be able to spread. I see. So, so you think it's, it's uh, plausible that we are truly sort of at the end of, of the pandemic? Yeah, because as more and more people uh, have national immunity, whether they are vaccinated or not, but they have had COVID, either before they were vaccinated or after they were vaccinated, uh, then they will have national immunity, and then uh, we will enter the endemic stage, which means that the virus is not going to go away. We're going to live with this for hundreds of years. It's going to always be with us. But uh, what's going to happen is that when you get infected uh, a second time, it's not going to be uh, serious unless you're very, very old and frail. But you will maybe feel a, you maybe might be even asymptomatic, but you might still have a normal cold, just like with existing uh, coronaviruses. And what's lucky, what's good, what's sort of we're lucky with, with this is that it's not a serious disease for children. So children who are born, uh, susceptible, they don't have the immunity when they're born, they will get it in the first few years of life. And at that point, this disease is not uh, dangerous. 
And I think that has to do with that they have a sort of a very adaptable immune system. Uh, so um, uh, that can protect them at this early stage. And then once they've had it uh, as a child, that will then protect them from serious disease later on. So when they are 60 years old, they will uh, have good protection against this virus, unlike those who are 60 years old uh, now who mm-hmm. hadn't been exposed to this throughout their lives. So it sounds like if I sort of take in everything that you've said, it, it sounds like what you're saying is if we hadn't, if we had, if we had listened to, to you and some of your colleagues and implemented that kind of strat, the targeted approach strategy that allowed us to reach herd immunity faster, rather than the strategy that the U.S. and other other places um, often implemented, that we would have ended up in the exact same place. We just would have gotten there sooner. Uh, correct, and uh, with less collateral damage on other aspects of public health, with less collateral damage on education and so on. Um, at the same time, one of our big concerns when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration was that people thought that doing these general lockdowns across the population would protect the old and vulnerable, uh, the high-risk people. And that was clear that that wasn't the case. So uh, uh, one of our uh, goals with the Great Barrington Declaration was to urge governments to do a better job protecting those high-risk older people who were not properly protected. And what are some of the major areas of collateral damage in the public health sphere that that you think are worth pointing out? Uh, so I know that uh, cardiovascular disease outcomes has uh, gone down. Um, people were afraid of going to the hospital either, but maybe because uh, they were afraid of catching COVID or because uh, the hospitals were closed. Uh, they could only do a virtual visit maybe. Or maybe because they knew if they went there, they wouldn't be able to be with their uh, husband or wife or daughter or son, or mm. uh, they would be all alone because visitors were not allowed. And therefore, I know people who didn't go to the doctor be- or the hospital because of that. They didn't want to be isolated all, uh, all alone. So cardiovascular disease outcomes has been worse. Uh, uh, another one is cancer. Now, that's different because it doesn't mean that more people are going to die in cancer in 2021 or 22 because this is more of a long-term thing. But uh, cancer screening is important. So, for example, uh, somebody who didn't get the uh, screening for cervical cancer might now die three or four years from now instead of living another 15, 20 years. So uh, that's something we're going to have to live with and die with for a long time, uh, these uh, consequences. Uh, another one is, of course, uh, I mean, diabetes care. Uh, care. Uh, we knew that uh, childhood vaccination rates plummeted uh, during uh, in 2020. Uh, so that's concerning that uh, children are not getting the vaccines that they critically need against, for example, measles and so on. Uh, we have mental health, which has deteriorated. Um, uh, we have uh, uh, more opiate overdoses uh, and so on. Um, I have a colleague who who is working with, uh, she's a psychiatrist working with uh, autism and families with uh, children with autism. And they deteriorated uh, during this time because they didn't have the, they didn't get the proper treatment that they needed uh, during, uh, during these lockdowns and during this pandemic. So, uh, 
some of these uh, collateral public health damage is short-term and others is long-term. If, if we go to the developing world, uh, it's even more tragic because they locked down, they closed markets and so on. And uh, many families there, they live day-to-day. Uh, they, uh, they sell some projects on the streets, on the markets, and that's their income to feed the children for that day. And that closed down. So in India, you had people walking uh, uh, for 10 days to get back to their home villages uh, because they couldn't survive in New Delhi or in Bombay anymore. You have uh, people in, uh, uh, children in, in Africa who died uh, from starvation or uh, who were malnutrition uh, because of this. And, uh, and malnutrition has long-term consequences for, for health if you, have, if you don't get enough food when you're a child. So these are people who are already living on the, on the edge and the lockdowns uh, were devastating in the developing world. So uh, I, anybody who cares about people in other parts of the world, in the developing world, uh, uh, it's impossible for them to sort of to uh, support these, uh, these lockdowns that occurred during the pandemic. So, uh, you know, obviously in the U.S., there was one, we, we kind of took one path for the most part, and there were, of course, differences between the different states. Um, lockdowns were imposed, as you've said, in many places, um, but not everywhere. Um, one, of the, one of the countries that I remember hearing about a lot in the news for some time was Sweden. And there was a lot of contrasting of what was going on in Sweden compared to here and other places. You yourself are from Sweden, and I would love if you could kind of compare and contrast the way that the U.S. and Sweden um, handled their public health strategy. You know, now that we've had sort of two years to look back on it, are there any clear, uh, you know, clear differences there in terms of you know one strategy being more or less effective than the other? Yeah. So first of all, uh, even though Sweden, uh, it's not just Sweden. I would say that Scandinavia as a whole had a different approach. Uh, Scandinavia, uh, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Norway. Uh, if you look at sort of the Severity indexes is on the lockdowns. Uh, uh, those four countries all had the least severe uh, uh, lockdowns among Western Europe, uh, European countries. And uh, they also have among the lowest uh, COVID mortality um, and very low excess mortality. So I think that that was a much more sound approach that the Scandinavian countries did based on basic, basic principles of public health. Uh, it didn't mean that they did everything perfect. Uh, for example, in Sweden, uh, uh, in the first wave, uh, there were a lot of deaths in the nursing homes. They didn't protect the nursing home residents at all well. well. Uh, it was better in some other parts of Sweden where they have a different... Uh, where they have more smaller nursing homes, but uh, the nursing homes in Stockholm uh, uh, was uh, was a catastrophe. So that was a bad thing. Um, but Sweden kept schools open uh, for ages one to fifteen, as I mentioned. And while they were c- briefly closed in uh, Denmark and Norway and Finland, they sort of quickly opened them again. Uh, so uh, that's very different from the U.S., where where schools uh, were closed in many places for more than a year, in some places for almost two years, uh, which is, of course, very detrimental to children. Um, Another difference is the issue of masks. Uh, There were never any mask mandates uh, uh, for children in, in, uh, in Sweden, 
uh, uh, while they were in the US. Uh, I mean, the evidence for masks uh, working is is very, very uh, marginal. There's only been two clinical uh, randomized trials on masks, and uh, in, in adults, one was from Denmark, which showed that didn't show any evidence that it worked. Another one was from Bangladesh, which was a community randomized trial where they randomized villages, uh, and uh, they found that mass reduced transmission between zero and eighteen percent somewhere. So very marginal. Uh, so basically, mass that I either know or. Uh, or very little efficacy in terms of reducing transmission. Why do you think, so So the sort of cluster of Scandinavian countries that took a somewhat different approach, was that a coincidence or what reason was it that was driving this difference in, in the policies that they were implementing compared to other countries? Were they getting different information from different sources? No, I think that they had access to the same information. Uh, I do think that the Scandinavian countries tend to sometimes uh, we share languages, similar mm-hmm. languages. So I think there, there is they they maybe look a little bit at each other. Uh, so I think there's some of that. Um, I think that Sweden had a very sound state emergency in Anders Tegnell, uh, as well as an advisor, a former state emergency who was advisor Johan Giesecke, who kept their heads cool. Uh, during the beginning of the pandemic and realized that this is kind of a long haul thing. Uh, and uh, they didn't they basically didn't panic. I think that's one reason. I think also the, um, the populations in Scandinavia tend to be less authoritarian compared to uh, other European countries. Hmm. Interesting. You also mentioned a term a moment ago, uh, excess deaths. What what does that refer to, and why is that an important thing to track? So, excess death is how many people died, let's say, in 2020, compared to how many you would expect in a normal year. So, what you usually do, you comp- uh, so, so for example, for COVID, we're interested in the uh, number of de- excess deaths in 2020 and 21, and then we can compare. So, we can c- compare the total number of deaths with what was the number of deaths in the previous uh, five years, from 2015 to 19, for example. And there is one advantage of doing that compared to looking at COVID deaths, and that's that what is a COVID death is not necessarily a simple, clear thing to define. Uh, Many countries define it as somebody who died who had a positive COVID test during the prior a month, for example, but you can have a you can have a positive COVID test, and then you be asymptomatic and you die in a car accident. Well, that's not due to COVID. So, uh, so then, who are actually of those who are classified as COVID death? How many actually died from COVID versus with COVID? Mm-hmm. And you can do those studies, but CDC has uh, hasn't really wanted to do those studies, and there has been some studies in other countries. Uh, uh, where uh, I think there was one study in Sweden where of the COVID deaths, 20, uh, I think 50% was sort of due to COVID. I think about 30% it was a contributing factor and 20% it was completely unrelated. Uh, I forgot the exact numbers, but there were those three groups. So don't quote me on those exact percentages. But you, but with uh, when you look at overall death, you can't really... F- 
fool around with the statistics because either somebody dies or they don't die. It's sort of very clear. So, uh, so that's one reason why it's interesting to look at uh, excess tests. The other reason is that, well, if you do COVID measures, that will affect death of COVID, but it also affects cardiovascular death or, or diabetes death, for example. And what matters in public health is not just one disease, um, it matters health overall. So what really matters is uh, what is the mortality from everything combined, both from COVID and any collateral damage from the COVID strategy. So that's reflected in, uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, excess mortality. And there was one study, uh, this came out, I think, in 2021 in the US, and they found that if you look at the X, they looked at excess mortality in older people. And that was fairly similar to the COVID mortality. So it meant that most of the excess mortality in older people were due to COVID. But then they looked at people in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and they found that there was a quite a bit of excess mortality, but that excess mortality was much larger than the COVID mortality. Mm. Now was this due to underreporting of COVID? Well, probably not, because then you would also have underreporting among the older people. Uh, so you will see that effect there also, which we didn't. So what's, what's, uh, so my interpretation is that of the excess mortality in uh, younger and middle-aged adults, a small part of it was due to COVID, but the majority of it was due to the collateral damage. Um, could be cardiovascular disease, um, uh, opioid overdoses, etc. Hmm. So you've you've been quoted as saying, I think referring to the U.S. that both science and public health are broken. What what exactly do you mean by that? Uh, for public health, we threw out the basic principles of public health for this pandemic. And the results were not good. And I think that's being more and more obvious to more and more people. So it's natural that people no longer have the same trust in public health uh, authority, uh, uh, agencies that they used to have. Uh, it's very understandable. Uh, so, for example, for, for CDC and the government to insist that people who have already have immunity because they've had COVID... Uh, that doesn't count, that they still have to be vaccinated, that goes against uh, basic public health. And uh, uh, it's even worse because you have uh, uh, nurses and doctors who worked in the COVID wards uh, during the height of this pandemic, taking care of COVID patients. Many of them got infected. Uh, they were home sick for a while and recovered. Now they, and then they went back to work. Um, and then suddenly those hospital administrators who have been working from home out of risk, now vaccinated, decided that these nurses and uh, physicians who have superior immunity, they were going to be fired by the hospital for not being vaccinated. That goes against uh, science, uh, uh, goes against public health. They should have done the opposite. They should, have take, they should have hired nurses and physicians with national immunity and put them to work on the geriatric wards 
where the most uh, vulnerable, high-risk patients for uh, COVID work. Because even if they're, uh, even if uh, the vaccine doesn't give 100% protection, so even if these older patients were vaccinated, they could still contract COVID and die from it. So they should have used uh, nurses and physicians with national immunity on those wards because those are the least likely to infect those very vulnerable patients. But instead, they fire them. And how can you trust hospitals? How can you trust uh, CDC who make these decisions that goes completely contrary to both scientific evidence and basic principles of public health? Uh, so that's one aspect. The other thing is, I think with science is that we saw a situation where there were, uh, in terms of a her thinking or bubble thinking, uh, a certain narrative became the established narrative that you were not allowed to question. And uh, so scientists were uh, slandered or uh, uh, attacked for speaking up uh, against uh, the established narrative. And a lot of scientists therefore kept quiet because they uh, were afraid of speaking up. And one example where I was uh, the, uh, the uh, is that the director of NIH uh, uh, said that uh, the, those of us who wrote the Great Brighton Declaration, uh, we were fringe epidemiologists who had to be taken down. Uh, that's what he wrote to Anthony Fauci, who, uh, who concurred. And uh, the NIH director and Anthony Fauci sits on the biggest pile of medical research funding in the world. Uh, so uh, Anthony Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is part of NIH. Uh, so Anthony Fauci sits on the biggest pile of infectious disease research money. So that they are propagating a particular strategy, which turned out to be a, a catastrophic, uh, but they sit on all the research money means that scientists do not dare to speak up against them because they will be attacked and slandered, just like we were who wrote the Great Brighton Declaration. And you can't have science function like that. Uh, science only functions by having an open discussion. So for example, the authors who wrote this CDC paper, which I think was very bad, but they shouldn't be silenced and prevented from doing it. They need to be able to present what they think is good research. And then I can and others can criticize it and say, no, these are the reasons why that's not a good study. But they should never, ever be silenced and they should never be slandered or attacked for presenting what they think is uh, a good science because um, science works with, with putting things out there and then discussing it. And if you can't do that, science cannot progress. You can't have a science uh, that has to sort of follow a particular narrative. That's the death of science. That means that if, if we go down that road, that means the end of 400 years of enlightenment in terms of the science. So we have to have a situation where we don't have, um, where we have an atmosphere where everybody feels that they can present things and then we discuss it and sort it out. And both, both I and uh, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya and Dr. Gupta, we have always been uh, willing to uh, uh, discuss uh, our view on the pandemic with those uh, leading uh, 
people uh, like Anthony Fauci or uh, others who supported him uh, to have a frank discussion about it. But there were very few people who even dared to do that. Uh, and some did, and I respect them. Uh, some did uh, debate if, if, with us and had a different views, and I think that was very instructive for people to listen to. So I respect those who were willing to debate it, even though they had different views than us. But in terms of Anthony Fauci, he has not been willing to debate anybody, and the only one who he has forced to is uh, Rand Paul, uh, because he has to do the Senate hearings, and he's one of the few... Uh, uh, members of Congress who, who, uh, who is a physician, so he knows not something about medicine. But other than that, uh, uh, Anthony Fauci has not been willing to have any discussions, open discussions about his, uh, his, uh, his misguided strategy. Do you think, you know, part of the problem here, based on what you just described, is you've got the same individuals in charge of setting or at least promoting the policies who are also in charge of where the research dollars go? Should there be some kind of separation of church and state there, ideally? There should be. So that's a very good point. There should be. And actually, there is, because NIH's responsibility is to do fund the research. The responsibility of uh, the policy is CDC. So uh, organizationally, there is a separation, but somehow... Uh, uh, Anthony Fauci sort of went in and wanted to do the policy side, which is very weird because that's not his job. That's the job of the CDC director to, to organize that. What is the job of Anthony Fauci is to fund the science that's needed to deal with the pandemic. And unfortunately, that failed because one thing that should have been done very early on is to organize uh, clinical trial, randomized trials on various treatments. Uh, doesn't matter if you think they are good or not, they should have been studied in, in randomized trials to actually find out if they work or not. The only one that had a good study, I think was remdesivir, one of the few at least, which was found not to work very well. So that was good. We're, there was a hypothesis that it might work. We do a thorough randomized trial turns out it doesn't work very well. And then we know that's important. But that should have been done for uh, uh, several dozens of diff existing medications. And the reason it was done for remdesivir is because it's proprietary. So there is a company who owns it. So if it worked, uh, they would have done a good profit. So they were saying, okay, let's do the trial. If it works, we'll make money. If it doesn't work, uh, so be it. But many of these existing drugs, like ivermectin, for example, are not proprietary. So there's no incentive from a pharmaceutical company to do the trial because they cost a lot of money. And since it's a generic drug, they won't be able to make money on it. So that was the responsibility of the government to do, and specifically of NIH, because that's our agency for doing medical research and specifically of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, because that's the part of NIH that's do research on infectious diseases. But Anthony Fauci never launched these randomized trials on treatments. Uh, and that was his job to do that. That was his role, and he didn't do it. Instead, he, he decided to design a public health strategy without being a public health scientist and sort of step on the toes of CDC, 
uh, with CDC, and and that was the role of CDC to do that. Interesting. I, I didn't know some of those intricacies there. Uh, so that's that that is very interesting. Are you hopeful or are you pessimistic about whether or not the health and integrity of these institutions will get better or worse over time? Mm, I don't think it get that much worse. At least not CDC. Uh, so I don't know if I'm optimistic or not, but I don't think we have a choice. We have to do our best uh, because we need have to have a trustworthy and well-functioning public health agency. And we need to have uh, a strong, vibrant uh, medical research community funded by, uh, by NIH. So we need those two things. But uh, there are big problems because if you look at, for example, university presidents and medical school deans, many of them went on the bandwagon of Fauci and Collins. Um, and just one example is that many universities fired people who were with national, superior national immunity, basically disregarding uh, thousands of years of scientific knowledge. So I don't know how these university presidents who took those decisions uh, can sort of uh, claim to be uh, uh, to be upholding uh, uh, scientific knowledge and to be at the spearhead of uh, of, science, of the scientific development. Well, I mean, it sounds there's a distinction people have uh, spontaneously come up with on the internet between science with a, a lowercase s, and they often will write it science versus science with a capital S and a little trademark symbol. Um, next to it on the internet, and that does seem to be sort of what's going on here in some ways, where you know people are following not what the scientific not body of knowledge says in some cases, but they're following what people in certain positions are saying because they're sort of just declared to be the the final arbiters of truth. Yeah, you're right, and that's the problem. What you know? What do you think the I think we'll probably just reiterate some of the things that, that you've told us about, but what do you hope are some of the major lessons that people, even you know, average people, part of the public, take away from what has happened in the past couple of years? Well, I hope one lesson is that uh, when we get the next pandemic, and we will have another pandemic, uh, it might be 10 years from now, it might be 50 years from now, who knows, but there will be another pandemic. And my one hope is that we don't repeat uh, uh, these uh, uh, mistakes with having general lockdowns, closing down society, uh, closing schools. Now, the exact strategy, we don't know what it will be because it depends on the disease. Uh, in this case, it was the old who was high at risk. We had to take the older people. Uh, in the pandemic of 1919, uh, a lot of young people died. So uh, if, uh, if we get a different disease, uh, the specific actions to protect those at highest risk might be different. But I think the principle, uh, I hope we can follow, that uh, we don't close down society as a whole, but we protect those that need the protection the most. And I think uh, when people think about the Great Barrington Declaration, many people think of it that open schools and those things, which is absolutely critical, and not closing down society the way we did. 
But the other ha- half is equally like uh, important is, and that's so tragic that we didn't protect the, all the people that needed to protection needed protection. We didn't we didn't do what uh, all the things we could to protect them. Uh, neither before the vaccine nor after with the vaccine. And to me, that's uh, tragic because a lot of people died because we didn't protect them uh, as well as we could have done. So what is your, uh, what is your professional focus r- right now? I think we need to reestablish new scientific institu- institutes, research institutes, uh, to help uh, with uh, the broken science. So I'm involved in two initiatives of that. One is the, the Brownstone Institute, uh, which um, the goal is to, uh, uh, to look at the things we need to do to repair public health, but also to repair society uh, after uh, uh, to recover from these devastating lockdowns during this pandemic, uh, how to recover economically as well as uh, um, in uh, sort of socially and, and uh, uh, with the humanities. I think one important way that we need to do this is to for recovery is the arts, uh, whether it's music, uh, literature. Uh, poetry, uh, theater, and so on, uh, uh, painting, sculpture, as well as uh, 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 spiritual and uh, uh, and taking care of each other, uh, taking care of family members, uh, neighbors, work uh, work colleagues, and so on. Um, because whether you were for or against the lockdowns, you have gone through a very traumatic time, I think. And in my view, those who are uh, those who were a lot of people has been scared about this pandemic, about the virus, even though they're young and don't need to be very afraid of it. And that's something we should never do in public health to scare people more, uh, 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 something which, which is not warranted because the risk was always low for children. So people have been scared about themselves and their children. And that's the traumatic things that. Uh, we need compassion to help them overcome. I have a friend who uh, who I haven't seen in two years because he doesn't want uh, to have any contact with anybody. I talked to him over the phone and I don't, uh, I completely understand why he's afraid because uh, he, um, he's been feeding, he's been fed this uh, information from the media. So uh, that's my responsibility as a help to, 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 as a friend to sort of help him get out of that fear without uh, chastising him or uh, or blaming him for anything because it's not he he's, he's not who did that so i think we have to uh, to show that compassion to every other member of society to recover on the sort of the humanitarian uh, uh, scale and i think that's where the arts comes in and the humanities comes in as very very important uh, uh, things uh, Martin Koldorf, you've, you've shared a lot of useful information with us, and I definitely appreciate your time. Is there any, any final words you want to leave people with or anything you want to emphasize or reiterate before we sign off? No, well, thank you very much for this uh, conversation. Uh, it was a great pleasure talking to you, so thank you so much. Thank you.
Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.